Hey, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of CMO Conversations. This is actually part two of Trisha's conversation with Ryan Benici, the CMO of G2. Last time, Trisha and Ryan talked about how he was able to scale his career quickly and become a CMO by the age of 30. They also talked about how Ryan was able to scale his team's growth at G2 and scale traffic from 500,000 to 6 million buyers each month. So if you haven't listened to that one yet, I highly recommend going back into your feed and listening to that first. Because on this episode, Ryan and Trisha are picking up right where they left off. They talk about his approach to leadership, building relationships with his team, and how he's making space for mental health in the workplace. I'm going to hand it back over to Trisha and Ryan now. Enjoy! What would you say is your leadership style now that we've talked about your hiring style and the structure of your team? Like, what is your leadership style and how has that played into the success of your team, do you think? Yeah, that's a good question. It's it's actually been something that I've been thinking a lot more about lately because I've been reading a lot more. Like, I love Ben Horowitz's book, you know, The Hard Thing About Hard Things. And I feel like some excerpts from that have been going around in high rotation lately around kind of wartime CEO versus peacetime CEO. And it kind of got me thinking about like, am I a, like a wartime CMO or a peacetime CMO? And I'm not totally sure. I mean, I think in with everything that went down, it definitely took me a lot longer to start to work out what to do for us as a marketing team than I would have liked. I, I really felt kind of stunned by everything that was happening with Corona and just trying to think through sort of like the revenue implications of everything and definitely took me longer to get going than I would have liked. So I probably, I feel like right now I'm functioning well as a wartime CMO, if we call myself that, but early on, like it took me a while to really kind of like get my mojo. Essentially, I really felt like I was without mojo for the first month or so of COVID-19. So anyway, I just kind of share that as a bit of context. I'd say like more like longer term though. I mean, it's what's maybe interesting to know about me is I'm an Enneagram type at my core, which means I'm a challenger. And I kind of like swing to seven, which is the enthusiast. So I'm like a challenger that, that's like enthusiastic, but like pushes hard. And if for folks that are maybe more familiar with DISC, I'm like a DI, like a, a really like extreme DI right on the border between like dominance and influence. And so I like to move quickly. I like to talk about things, but I don't like to talk about things too much. Like I, too much talk is annoying <laughs> for me and frustrating. So I think that's like me at my core. I think when I'm in periods of stress, I've probably become more of a commanding style of leadership, which I don't love, to be honest. Like, I don't like that side of myself, but that's sort of where I go when I'm stressed. I become much more directive around like what I need people to do. And I think that's something that I I need to work on because I don't think commanding is necessarily bad, but there's like a way to go about it that, that works and there's a way to go about it that maybe doesn't always work. I'd say in general, though, when I'm on top of myself, when I am not super stressed, I'd say my style is probably more democratic as a leader. And, and I really like to do coaching with my leaders that are under me. I was really fortunate five or so years ago to get an executive coach. And I've had one ever since then. And that really helped me kind of like get out of the mentality. And I think this is important for anyone that moves up and becomes senior really quickly is it's it's really tough to get out of like the doer mentality as opposed to like leader. And so coaching really helped there and helped me realize that like my job wasn't to solve my team's problems. My job was to help kind of create an environment that whereby they could learn and they could handle their own problems themselves because ultimately like I'll then become a bottleneck if I don't do that. I'd say 
today though, I, I really try and adapt my leadership. So if for someone that's newer and more junior and needs more help, like I might be more directive with them versus someone that's more experienced, I might just try and support them or just delegate work to them because I know that they know what they're doing. So I think I, I try and adapt between being direct, being a coach, being a supporter or being a delegator. And and I think I'm always trying to reevaluate based on the person's experience and their track record with doing the thing that I may be working with them on, what type of person I need to show up as. Um, again, though, it's like one of those things that I'm always learning and, and trying to get better at. So yeah, I'll be curious to see how that changes over time. What is your leadership style out of curiosity, Trisha? I tend to be the sort of mentor coach leader. I definitely can be very definitive and <laughs> more in that sort of like dominant. I I tend to talk probably too much and then share my opinion. And because I tend to project it with a lot of confidence, it comes across that maybe I'm not as open in terms of hearing yeah, what other people. I, I think I, I have the same situation. Yeah, sometimes. But I mean, but at the end of the day, I share my opinion on things in the hope that it'll direct conversation. So I probably need to say a little bit less. Like my philosophy is I want to hire really strong people and coach them and break down walls and open up doors for them and use my time and energy to really help them build their success. So I think the stronger you have a team, the more you can do, the more you empower your people and that you spend your time to like coach those people to do well. Yeah, I couldn't agree with you more there. And I think the other thing is that I really believe in like fostering a sense of belonging and ownership where like everybody understands how they contribute to the bottom line of the company. It doesn't matter if you're the creative director, you understand how having a strong brand leads to the great experience, leads to more people being able to understand what you do and that that helps the company grow. For example, when I got to Drift, everybody was in their silos. And I think it was also very hard for them to understand how they mapped to the bottom line because the one team of demand gen was held accountable for pipeline, but then the other teams didn't directly contribute to pipeline. So that was a big thing for me was to foster a collaborative environment across the teams because I really believe by having that collaborative input, you're going to do better work. So that's been a big thing for me. But I think one of the things that, especially in today's day and age that you have been recognized for is this commitment to mental health. So I guess it's not a leadership style. It's a little bit more like what is the sort of philosophy of engaging with people. Can you talk a bit more about how this became a podium for you and how it kind of shows up at work in like the outside of work, like just in terms of like the broader community outside of G2, I guess I mean. Like, where did that come from and like, what has it meant for you in your career? Yeah, sure. So I think the quick story on that is essentially, so I started at G2 a little bit after my 29th birthday in the CMO role. And what was really interesting was that I was the happiest that I've ever been. You know, I'd got my dream job. I got it by like the goal I wanted to get there. I wanted to get to the C-suite by 30. And then within about a month of getting the job, I just started to feel like um, what's the word? I started to kind of just feel that itch that I had felt before that kept me like pushing and moving on up. And it kind of really made me reflect because I was like, Ryan, like, what is wrong with you? Like, you've literally been working your whole life to get to this job at this age and with a company that you re really admire and you enjoyed it for like a month. And now you're like unhappy. And now you're thinking like, well, you need to be the CEO or maybe you need to be a VC. And I kind of had this 
I was, I think I was really fortunate to like have that realization at a young age. Cause I looked around and I saw, I was like, okay, like I've ticked all the boxes that I want to tick. And like, I'm not satisfied. Like this, like, isn't the way it's meant to be or the way I thought it would be. And so it kind of like forced me to go down like a really deep and dark path really quickly of self-reflection. And, and so funnily enough, my wife is a clinical psychologist and and naturally around this time, like I was starting to feel really depressed because I had taken on this role. I think I felt the imposter syndrome of being young, being so much younger than all of the other senior leaders on the team. And then I had this immense weight on my shoulders that I think I had mainly put there myself to like drive impact really quickly to prove to myself, to prove to the company that I was worthy. And so long story short, I think I realized that like I was using my job and my career and my possessions and my success as like a way to feel self-esteem for lack of self-esteem that I actually had at my core from like a young kid and from being bullied when I was younger. And so I think essentially I I had within maybe like this 12 month period, like I went from like being semi-suicidal to be honest, to then being so much like through it. And I was really proud of where I'd gotten to. And I felt like I had learned so much about myself and, and I kind of wanted to just share that with people, I guess, essentially, and let them know that like, it's okay to like have these like feelings and to talk about them. And so step one for me was I literally just, instead of like having my therapy sessions on my calendar as private, I just made them not private, right? That was like my step one of like coming out of like the mental health closet essentially, right? Which is crazy that that was a thing because like no one's afraid to put like gym on their calendar or like Peloton or workout. That's like a badge of honor when you work on your body and your health. But like when you work on your mind, like you're ashamed of that, which is, it's totally fucked up. And so the more I talked about this and the more I thought about it, I realized that I wanted to start sharing more publicly about it. And so I started sharing more, you know, I did an op-ed for the World Health Organization, an op-ed for HBR, an op-ed with NBC and and a bunch of different publications that started reaching out as I started speaking. Because I think they liked the angle that it was like this executive talking about something that no one really talks about. And so that then I think over time helped me feel more connected with my team actually because they would start to come to me and say hey ryan like i need to take a mental health day everything's okay but i just i'm a bit burnt out and i want you to know that like normally i would have never ever told a boss that i'm taking a mental health day i just would have said i'm sick but i feel like i can tell you that and so i just started to feel this like deep connection with my employees and started to feel like we all belong together and we were all facing similar challenges and similar demons like that's what it is to be human i think and so so yeah, it kind of made me feel really, really connected. And and then I think at that point in time, Glenn Close reached out because she she's obviously an actress, but then she founded an organization called Bring Change to Mind a decade or, go, or so ago, basically focused on fighting the stigma around mental health. Because I think she did a lot of research and she ultimately saw that like there's there's really great resources for people when they raise their hand, when they say, I need help, right? Like the suicide prevention hotline, there's so many amazing resources, therapy. But the statistics show that when someone has like a mental health onset of a condition, they typically don't raise their hand and ask for help for 10 years, which is insane. And that was kind of the case for me, right? Because I'd say like I probably had like mental health challenges from like the age of maybe 18 they weren't as pronounced by any means. And I I was able to kind of not realize them by focusing on work and career and attainment. 
And it wasn't until maybe I was like 28 that I realized that I actually needed to like address some deeper things. And so I joined Bring Change to Mind and that kind of also helped me have a bit more of a platform to start to share my thoughts here. And I speak really openly with the leaders at G2 and with leaders of other companies and consult on this because I'm really passionate about it. And for leaders that like maybe want to start to be more vulnerable, but want to be more open, I, I typically tell them just like start small, right? Like you can be vocal for your actions. You don't need to just like blurt everything that you're feeling out there immediately. And you can if you want to as well. And I think by doing that and by leadership showing that we're not all perfect because God, no one's perfect, right? But what you see on LinkedIn and on Instagram really maybe kind of distorts people's image so often. Yeah, that's helped me and that's helped a lot of leaders. And so it's just something that I, I'm really passionate about. Yeah, I mean, I think in the end there, you bring up the point about how important it is to like really be transparent and accessible to your team and how it's refreshing in a way when you can admit that you're not perfect because we are surrounded so much by like the Instagram feed, the LinkedIn feed, like everything where it appears like everybody's perfect. And that's sort of like, I mean, I guess it's semi-purposeful that everybody puts their best thing. Like most people don't put out there like, I'm having a mental health day today. Like I just couldn't take <laughs> yeah. it anymore. I respect some people because I I know a couple people who really use those platforms to then just raise their hand and say, hey, like the last three months have looked perfect, but let me tell you like really what's going on in my life. And I think it takes longer to do that, but I think it makes that person more human. Yeah, yeah, you're right. And I think like you said, every time that we talk that there's like, we have this connection we just like talk and it just becomes like this great conversation. (laughs) It's interesting, like you talk about how you put your time and energy into your work. And I had this experience kind of around the same time that you're talking about actually, where, you know, I've always been very driven and I always had this like ambition and go get it and build your career and not as aggressive as you with like this idea to be a CMO by 30. And I definitely didn't make it to that level at that fast. I don't, I don't recommend anyone go down that path. I (laughs) I don't think I would do it again, to be honest. (laughs) But when I was 29, you know, I had been doing Ironman. I had been like growing my career. I was thinking about, I had been married, like all these things. And then all of a sudden I just like realized like I'm not happy in anything. It was a huge wake up for me. And I ended up getting divorced and really like sitting there and saying, holy crap, like I've been so focused on go for the next thing, go for the next thing, go for the next thing. I haven't really been focused on me and like, what do I need? And I didn't even know how to do that. Yeah. That was like the scariest time because I'm like, oh my God, like since I was 10, I was like, oh, I have to like be the best in baseball and then I have to do this and then (laughs) I have to learn how to do this so I can go to school for that. And then when I'm in school, I have to learn this so I can go be a career of that. And, you know, just like this, like on and on and on and on. Yeah. So a few things, a few thoughts. First, like what I love about just this little interaction, right? And this is why I try and share this with people is when you are vulnerable with someone else and you share a part of yourself that you don't typically share, people typically reciprocate. Like there's maybe like one in 20 people when I share my stories around mental health, do they then not reciprocate and share something vulnerable about them? In the same way that you just did that about you, right? And that shows now people that they can respond, they they can share stuff with you and then you'll share back with them. So I love that because I think that's just like a beautiful little microcosm of like what being vulnerable does for the people around you. And then to your point around kind of, you know, what you went through, I think it's really tough. I vividly remember in high school when I was majoring in psychology, 
like learning about unconditional positive regard and how like, you know, we need to like raise our kids to know that like, it's not about achievement. It's about like them just like being proud of who they are and like doing the best they can. And I feel like somewhere along the way, that message doesn't ever seem to make it through to like when we start and in our careers. And, and it's a tough one as well, because like, there's a part of me that thinks at times, like, I'm kind of glad that I didn't have this I don't know. I don't know if this is true, but I feel like sometimes I think to myself, gosh, like if I didn't become aware of my like issues a bit later in life, like when I was 29, maybe I wouldn't have pushed as hard as I did. And I, and I sometimes think about this. I'm like, gosh, like would I have changed it if I had no, if I could have changed it? And I don't know if I would or wouldn't have. Yeah. It definitely maybe would have changed my path and where I would have gone and maybe I wouldn't have beaten myself up so much if I didn't feel like I was hitting those goals that I felt like I should be hitting. But at the same time, I got so much energy out of that feeling of being like someone with a chip on their shoulder, that that person that needed to prove something to like the bullies from the past. And so it stoked a, a fire in me that was awesome, but then also kind of like burnt me inside a little bit. And so, yeah, it's been, it's been, I think just even having vocabulary to like understand what I went through and to talk about that. And everyone has similar stories realistically, right? Whether they realize them or not. So yeah, it's, it's, it's fun. Well, I think it's interesting because I know every company does their review cycles and things like that. And we're in the midst of doing one of our review cycles. And one of the things that's coming up is this, the sense of empathy. And I think one of the things in my own career that the overall ambition to move forward, move forward, move forward, move forward. I think for me, it cut out a little bit of the ability to just be empathetic with the people around me. And I think in today's day and age, what's happening is we're starting to see so much more how like, it's not a business buying from a business. It's humans that are doing the research on your site, listening to other humans. And it's so much more important to think of like, what is that human factor within everything? that the empathy comes out. Do you think that that impacted sort of like what you've experienced now, sort of looking at the question and this incorporation of mental health into what you've been talking about in this platform? Has that changed the amount of empathy that you've had in your work? Yeah, that's a great question. I I definitely think it has. And something that I think as my like leadership has evolved over time, I remember once one of my, my, my original executive coach said to me, she was like, Ryan, you need to learn how to balance results and relationships. She said, it's like something that's like a really unique balance. And right now, like you are just like fucking so focused on results and like you are not thinking about relationships. And if you really want to build teams that, um, they get motivated and inspired by you, you can't just focus on results. And essentially what I was realizing was like, I was like beating myself up so much inside about results. And that was then kind of overflowing to my team and that's like no way to motivate people right and so yeah i think by learning like how to better balance because i think people either over this i think it's a rare human that can balance those two things perfectly right if i think back in my career people that were like the over indexed in relationships used to really frustrate me and i have vivid memories of speaking to like my bosses in the past where i'd be like like why don't we like work more on like this other leader? Like all they do is like talk about their team, but they're not driving results. Like, ah, and it used to like really frustrate me at my core. And, and I didn't even realize that like, I was like, I was doing the same thing, but in the other direction. And both aren't right. Because if you, if you kind of like over coddle your employees, they never learn actually like what they need to do to hit goals. 
on the flip side, if you like over-focus on goals, they never really learn how to like develop their own interpersonal skills. And so I think I've gotten a lot better at balancing those two things. But I think for me, it's like, for me, I always need to remember to really lean into the relationship because at my core, and I, I think this is maybe why we get along so well, you and I, is that like, I think you're really results driven too. And so I think I remember saying to my coach once, I was like, but what if I become too relationship oriented and I forget about results? And she was like, Ryan, results are in your fucking DNA. You're never going to forget that. So like, just focus on relationships. The results will happen. Like you can't change that about yourself, but you can kind of change how you think about connecting with others and not viewing everyone as like an adversary to you. And I think that was something that I needed to learn. And maybe I'm like kind of deflecting responsibility here, but I think a big lesson for me was because I was always a regional leader. So I ran marketing for Salesforce in all of Asia Pacific. I did it for HubSpot. I did it for Exact Target. I think I had this like deep down kind of like anger towards like the HQ team because I don't know if you, I think, yeah, you, when you were doing marketing in Canada, yeah, when I was Salesforce, in Canada, like I experienced firsthand right? that. Yeah. You never ever get anywhere near the support, anywhere near the budgets. No one knows what you're doing. And at the time, it used to frustrate me because I was like, gosh, like, look at our numbers. Like, we are crushing our numbers with so much, like, little money that our counterparts in Latin America and EMEA had. And so I kind of viewed EMEA and LATAM as, like, competitors, right? Like, we all we were all kind of like the regional CMOs that reported into the global CMO. And I just, like, felt like we were dueling constantly. And maybe I was the only one, but, like... <laughs> I think that's a constant thing because it is like, it's like the children all fighting to get attention from the parent, right? <laughs> totally. And I felt like I was, I don't know which child in like a big family of three kids, maybe it's the middle kid that gets like neglected the most. I felt like APAC was, was the middle kid. That stoked a bit of like anger and frustration in me, which then I think kind of propelled me to focus more on results. And that ultimately allowed me to then assert why I should have been promoted faster. And because I was able to say, hey, boss, like, these other two people that report to you, like they have bigger teams, they have more money, like they're not driving as much marketing source revenue as I am. Like, this feels totally unfair to me, right? Like if you're not going to pay me properly and give me the promotion and give me the same title as them, like I'm, I'm out. I was really fortunate that me and my boss had a really strong relationship. And I think I probably hadn't advocated for myself so strongly in the past. And fortunately, I was able to lean on the data to show that. And so it worked out in the end. I then had, I think, a bit more of that mentality when I came to HQ and almost viewed like different functions in a business outside of marketing, maybe a little bit adversarial. And I think I, I had to really quickly realize it. Whoa, Ryan, no, they're not. Like you all need to work together to really achieve the company's goals. And, and one of my bosses, the CMO at HubSpot once taught me, he was like, hey, like he said to me, my first team is the senior leadership team. So like he viewed his first team as like the core team with the CRO, with the CFO, with the chief legal officer, et cetera. And then marketing was his second team. And that was like a really good kind of reminder for me that like actually my first team is, is the senior leadership team and I need to prioritize like working with them over prioritizing working in my team because that's when we do that, like we are now all together working on the business and we can take ownership of each other as opposed to like being in silos and not really and not really kind of being as maybe helping to each other. Yeah, I think it's good. I think on the bookshelf behind me is The Advantage, which is from The Table Group, which is founded by Patrick Lexioni, which is 100% about the first team being the leadership team and then how that cascades down and how I think the other thing we haven't talked about and we don't need to go there, but is this concept of trust. And if you have that mentality of your first team being 
that leadership team and you can build a trust across that team to really show the capability to work together, you can move faster. And then when you show that trust across the team, it just becomes a mental model for everyone below you to also work across the teams, maybe even just across the teams of marketing, but also to realize like, oh, well, maybe the answer to this question is in the product org or in the sales org or somewhere else. And to not always just sort of silo and and feel like you're on your own. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, we've talked about a lot of things and I feel like for sure, I don't know if you would say this, you spoke before about one of your superpowers, but I think the superpower of the vulnerability and the ability for you to kind of connect even outside of G2 with this mental health as a platform seems like it's one of your superpowers because it really opens up doors, I would say. Are there any other superpowers you feel like you have that we haven't covered? You know, the vulnerability is a funny one because when you say that, like, I don't know if that's a full vulnerability yet. I think I am learning how to turn it on. Actually, that's maybe that's the wrong way to put it. I think my vulnerability is typically always turned on. And sometimes when I'm under stress, it closes off. And I think I'm still learning how to to like not lean into my eight Enneagram type of challenger always and actually learn how to like through authenticity and kindness, which are two key values at G2, like starting to like lean into those before kind of like fighting back. So so I don't know. I just wanted to say that because I don't want to, I, I feel like I can't fully own that. That would be like me lying because I don't believe that I fully own that as a superpower just yet. I think, I don't know. I think the superpower around building teams is one for me. I think, I think being really direct and being really open and honest, even if it's not all, again, when I'm open and honest, like it's just, I'm always telling my story though, right? So I'm pretty, I'm super direct with people, but I also try and like asterisk that like, this is my story. Like this is made up by me. So it could be wrong, but I'm always going to give it to you. And, and I think I'm really fortunate that like we have built a leadership team at G2 and my boss, whereby like we are fucking brutally honest with each other. And it, I think my skin is still kind of thickening. Like I'm a really sensitive guy deep down and and it's weird, like I can I can dish it out, but like, fuck, it used to be hard for me to take criticism if I didn't think it was fair. And so I think I've had to learn that, but I've also just had to learn to like be really, really direct with people. I don't know if you've read Kim Scott's book, Radical Candor. And I think I used to, I've always been really direct. And I think what I've changed is now I'm only direct once I've built personal trust with the person and so that they know that I trust and care about them. So I think that totally reframes the direct feedback because it's coming at them from a perspective of like love and like helping. I I really want to help you and I care about you. And this isn't to hurt you and bring you down. This is to like build you up. And I don't think I had my mechanics right on that in the past. And I probably wasn't as good at doing that. So that's maybe uh, the, the other piece of it. Yeah, I think that's a really good layer to layer on in terms of how to give constructive feedback, how that probably plays into the building of your teams and getting the results that you want, which all kind of play together in your sort of success model. I think that you've you've built uh, across all these different companies. Is there one lesson that you think you really have learned along the way that you think is the most important lesson to share with the audience? Yeah, that's a great question. I was thinking a little bit about this. I think something that I learned really early on, partly to do with, you know, being a regional marketer, I think is because I always felt like I, you know, we weren't noticed and we didn't have as much budget and we didn't get as much airtime with things. 
I think I learned really early that like the best way to get like attention and visibility for your team and the best way to drive impact is to understand what are the biggest problems in the company right now and how can I go and solve them. So I have like really strong memories of like when I was at Salesforce, even at HubSpot, when our COO, the chief operating officer globally would come out to the region I was always obsessed with learning like what is it that like keeps you up at night time? Like what is it? And and that would help me then better understand like, okay, what levers can I pull as a marketing team in my world to try and address that problem for them? So back at HubSpot, you know, we were having a challenge with churn many years ago. And and then I remember like taking that lesson from the COO and then working really closely with our customer success team in in APAC to develop a lot of automations to help them get like more predictive insights into when a customer might be churning. And so I would say essentially like aligning yourself to like the most important parts of the business is a really, really good way to set yourself up for success and to drive impact and to ultimately be rewarded and to celebrate those rewards with your team because that kind of really is what keeps the company afloat. Yeah, I think um, it also is a great thing to think about as a CMO because I think the CMO has a unique seat at the table to be able to look across the entire business. And marketing can, in some way, shape, or form, I think, really impact the whole business. So if you know that, then having you do actually have your hands in the things that can make a difference, whereas in other teams, maybe not so much. Thank you for such a great conversation. It's really been enlightening. I think you have so many different things that you've done to build your career. It's so impressive that you've been able to make it to your goal of being a CMO by age 30. <laughs> Silly goal, but yeah. <laughs> Thanks again for listening to CMO Conversations. If you liked this episode, please be sure to leave us a six-star review wherever you listen to podcasts. And one more thing. If you're looking for even more CMO content, we've got a newsletter for you. Once a month, Trisha shares the customer-centric, data-driven, and barrier-breaking marketing headlines that are defining today's CMO. Sign up at drift.com slash chief-marketing-officer.